that, that should do it. And uh, this is very sensitive, so I'm going to put it on something soft here. In fact, you know what I'm going to do is put it on my jacket because otherwise it picks up all this the shaking of the table. So just a, a, by way of a little bit of introduction to recapitulate what we did or said last week here, if you got these handouts, uh, it's going to be recorded, so there's an audio recording. I'm going to be putting these online, so if you don't, you know, if you want to come to two or three, that's fine. If you want to come to just a one, that's fine. If you want to try to make them all, that's great. Uh, if you miss some, you want to listen to it on, on audio, that's good too. I'll give you the website and you can go to that and just listen to it right on the website. Um, I'll also give, if someone can remind me, so for next week I'll say, why don't you read, and I will probably, hopefully we'll be getting into Abraham, but you know, realistically, we'll probably still be stuck in Noah. So next week I'll have you read a few chapters out of Genesis, either from Genesis 6 to 9 or from Genesis 12, 13, 14, something like that. So just a few chapters. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine too. But if you want to do it, you'll be all the more prepared for next week. It's really, it's all up to you what you can handle, what your schedule allows for. Ordering a book, I think this is this is one of the books I have in the background of my head as I'm doing this course. I think this is a really nice book, and uh, it's uh, very very straightforward. And it's kind of fun, uh, a little cheesy. The guy's got a sense of humor. He's a, he's a professor. He knows how to how to teach. Uh, the Bible to people who've never read it before ever, and um, so it's it's a nice book. I recommend it. If you want to get the title of that, you can just come up anytime and get that. It's John Bergsma Bible Basics for Catholics, and a lot of the ideas in that book I'm using for my own lessons here. Uh, you can order it yourself, or you can call in. We can do a group order, and then finally, if we can have some designated readers. Um, who wants to, you know, from experience from the past, I found people are, some, some people are, they like to read and others are very uncomfortable with it. So those who, those who wouldn't mind reading in public in front of people, could I have a, you know, a few volunteers, two or three people maybe? Okay, and I'm sorry, what? Monica. Monica, okay. So we'll have our designated readers. All right, who else? Tony. Tony, okay. I'm sorry, Tony, am I going to spell your name right here? Or? With an I? Yes. Like, T-O-N-I. Oh, T-O-N-I. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Charlie. Charlie, okay. Is that right? That's it. Is that correct? Yeah, that works. I'm sorry about that. And then uh, Rick. Rick, Rick, okay. That's right. Okay. Good, we're having men step up to the plate here. That's good. So uh, anybody else want to be a designated reader? We've got four of them so far. Sandy, you're not shy, right? No. I don't know, Sandy, am I spelling your name right? With a Y. If you're born okay. in 39, you don't use an I. Okay. <laughs> Is that when it stops? Is that that's the cutoff point? Okay. That's wisdom right there. Okay, good. So we've got five designated readers. You've heard of designated drivers, but these are designated readers because it's going to get dangerous. All right. Let's begin with a with some with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in our midst and that uh, he would open our eyes so that we would come to understand your Son, Jesus Christ, all the more deeply through the Word of God that you've given to us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 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 Okay, so uh, some just a very, very quick... Last week I talked about certain... What we're going to be doing is going through the whole Bible. But just, you know, we're going to read just little sections here and there. But the idea is to get an overview of the entire Bible, uh, which I think is rarely done. Lots of times when Bible studies are done, you, you focus on one book or two books or something like that, or a few chapters. And uh, that's there's a lot of merit to that. You can get a lot out of it. Uh, approaching Scripture that way, you're going deep. This, what we want to do is kind of go broad, and I want to uh, rely on a number of rely on a number of um, sort of thematic concepts that will gather the Bible together all into one. So there's maybe seven or eight different thematic concepts that I have that are going to tie the Bible together and unify it for us. And I went over those last week. Uh, One of them is the concept of covenants, that God has made covenants with mankind over the course of salvation history. And... um, the culminating covenant is the covenant is the new covenant is the new covenant in the blood of Christ our Lord, but that was preceded by many covenants before. And in fact, the daily mass readings today it says uh, talks about the Gentiles being brought into the uh, commonwealth of Israel, and who and we who were formerly strangers. Oh wait, you know I think it was yesterday's daily mass readings. We who were formerly strangers to the promises. And the covenants, plural, covenants, plural. That's in Ephesians chapter 3, 2 or 3. And then St. Paul in Romans um, chapter 9, he says uh, about the Israelites, he says, to them were the covenants, plural. So there's all these covenants in the Old Testament, not just the Mosaic Covenant, but there were more. And all of them are really forerunners of the supreme and final covenant that is in Christ's blood and in the Eucharist in the Mass. So we're going to show, one of the themes is going to be showing how that, that, uh, that comes about. And then in conjunction with the covenants, we have these figures. Okay, so there's going to be five main Old Testament figures we're going to look at. That'll probably be the first pass through the Old Testament to the new that we'll do together. So we started looking at Adam, the first man, uh, last, uh, Wednesday, and, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis. Genesis is a very important book. It's a foundational book for the whole Bible. So we have Adam, and then the second main figure is Noah. And then we have Abraham. And a very, very important epoch starts with Abraham. And as I pointed out last week, you've got prehistory and history. Historical times and prehistorical times. Genesis 1 through 11 are prehistorical times. They're very mysterious. As I said last week, you know, you have a lot of questions, historical questions. Is this history? Is it legend? Is it myth? What? All those sorts of things. Those are all very important and valid questions. And for now, I'm going to kind of set those questions aside and just look at the theological content, assuming some sort of historicity to these figures we read about, like Adam and Noah in particular. All right, but there, there are figures that that come to us. From very mysterious times, because they're prehistorical times, we don't really have any records, archaeological records, uh, much less human records or documentation from 
those times uh, in which they would have lived. So we don't really know exactly, I can't really place it on a chronological map and say they lived at this, you know, 5,000 years before Christ. It's not really sure. I'm not really sure about that. Whereas from Genesis chapter 12 onwards, you're in historical times. So Abraham, he lived probably around 2000 BC. Moses, uh, some people date the Exodus to say 1400 BC. More recent scholars or more modern scholars, I should say, they date the Exodus to, some, to the 13th century, early late 13th century so, uh, BC. So something like 1220, 1230 BC. So it's pretty, you know, these are starting to get into figures and events that you can place on a, on a, a chronological scale. King David would, uh, uh, would be the next figure after Moses, and uh, he's probably from around 1000 BC. So we've got five figures. We've got Adam and Noah from prehistorical times, and we've got uh, Abraham, Moses, and David. And God made covenants with all of them. With Adam, it's maybe not so clear that there's a covenant involved, but with the other figures, it's very clear. And I think by way of implication, the covenant was made with Adam as well. So let's look at Adam. Now, Adam, we can see, uh, this is the first sheet that I hand out, there's these certain uh, strong identities that Adam has, and I'm going to show you how all the figures have these same sorts of identities. So um, Adam as a priest, that's that's one of his sort of identities. Adam as a prophet, that's that would be another. Adam as king. Adam as son. Adam as husband or bridegroom. And then Adam as father. And you're going to see that all of these five figures can be portrayed or identified as priest, prophet, king, husband, son, and father. Almost all of them in some manner, shape, or fashion. And then, of course, who can you imagine would be the ultimate fulfillment of all of these identities and of all the covenants that are made? Jesus. Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, and then that also has to do with our identity. Now, this is very masculine language, I, I realize, but a lot of this can be seen. You know, for example, son, you could talk about daughter, okay, for women, uh, and the regal element that's in the that's in a king, you know, can be also applicable to women. Prophet, there's prophetesses. So there, there is some bit of translatability into feminine concepts and imagery. Um, but uh, it is heavily masculine language. There's no doubt about it. The Bible is a very masculine book. Um, but the one element of the, the sort of major overriding feminine imagery that I'm going to be focusing on is going to be Eve. And then it's this figure of the, the woman. Eve is called the woman before she, her name is actually spoken in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, it's the woman. And this figure of the woman becomes a sort of a type or it becomes bigger than the actual historical person of Eve. It becomes this type, and it becomes symbolic of Israel or the chosen people or the elect. And so this figure of the woman is going to be traced all throughout the Bible. And that's where, to counterbalance all the masculine imagery for, for the ladies here, to counterbalance all the masculine imagery, you'll have this figure of the woman. And then uh, she's a symbol of the elect, and then eventually she comes into her fullness of fulfillment in the church, and then in Our Lady. So Mary is the new Eve, and Christ is the new Adam, or the last Adam, and Mary is the last Eve. And just like Christ reversed the curse that Adam brought into the world, 
So, Mary, there's a very famous saying from an ancient church father by the name of St. Irenaeus, who was writing very early, maybe around the year 180 or so. So, second century uh, Catholic theologian. And, and he said about Mary, he said that Mary is the new Eve who by her obedience undid the knot that Eve's disobedience tied together. So it's a very nice, another metaphor and image. Uh, so Mary, through her obedience, through her cooperation with God's will for her life, uh, she said her fiat, which is the Latin. Who was afraid of Latin? Is the, is the person that was afraid of Latin not here? Okay, sorry. So one more Latin term, please forgive me. Mary's fiat means may it be done. Okay, may it be done according to your will. So Mary's cooperation with God's will for her life, she became a very she became a real cause of the redemptive incarnation. And there's no other human person in all of salvation history that that did anything even close to that. And so that's why Mary plays such a central and important role uh, in salvation history because it was through her free cooperation that she became a cause of the incarnation. That's amazing. That's amazing. And the incarnation is the salvation of the world. It's God becoming man uh, so that we can then enter into divinity um, and, and, and restore that union with God that was, that was lost originally with Adam. So let's look at Adam here uh, as priest. We went over last week about how... So this is kind of how I'm setting you up, okay? I'm trying to you know, show here... That Adam is got this, he's a priestly figure, although it's not immediately evident if you read Genesis 1 through 3 and you're like, okay, so where's the priest thing going on? It's not immediately evident, but that's the beauty of the scripture, and that's what I hope we can begin to see is that the Bible takes a lot of patience, and you have to really work with it and wait and listen and listen and read again and again and again and again, and then the things start to tie together. So, how Adam is a priest, there's a number of factors. The one thing I wanted to show was how creation, and then in particular the Garden of Eden, are portrayed in temple, in terms of the temple. And so, if Adam uh, it was placed in the Garden of Eden, then there's going to be, it would, it would stand to reason that there's a priestly dimension to uh, his uh, role in the Garden of Eden and in creation in general. So, with... Uh, Creation in general, we talked about how the seventh day is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is the, is the day set aside purely for cultic activity, worship of God. And uh, all of creation, day one, God created certain things. Day two, God created certain things, so forth and so on, all the way up into the sixth day when he created man. And then the seventh was the Sabbath, was the day of Worship. So all of creation is ordered towards worship. So creation in that sense is kind of a temple. We, look, we looked at a few Psalms. Uh, Psalm 148 in particular has all of creation worshiping God. Uh, Psalm, uh, let's see here, Psalm 78 verse 69 specifically says that God stretched forth the tents like a, I'm sorry, stretched forth the heavens like a temple. Okay? And then, um, there's also parallels in language between Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3 and Exodus. Uh, Exodus 39, when Moses is instructed to make the tabernacle, which is kind of a movable temple. And uh, there's very strong language parallels. 
when Moses is constructing this tabernacle, it's a place, it's a dwelling place within which God and man would come and be and, and meet. So there'd be a divine human uh, linkage or meeting point in the tabernacle. But the tabernacle need to be, needed to be constructed. It needed to be made. And it's the language that's, that is used to show Moses constructing the tabernacle is very similar to the same language that God, that's used to describe God constructing, if you will, the world. So the world then becomes a meeting place between, for God and man. And that's why God created the world. So that, what, what's the Baltimore Catechism saying that, you know, God, why, why did God make you so that you would know and love Him, serve Him in this world and know Him and be happy with Him forever in heaven? So that's the reason why God created the universe. And in fact, the Baltimore Catechism uses the word serve, which will, if I can remember, will point out how Adam was to, uh, it's a priestly term. The word serve is a priestly term. Also, I think of something that comes into the Mass. We have the Sanctus as we enter into, right after the preface, as we're entering into the canon, and we say the Sanctus, and we're repeating the angels, what the angels sing, according to Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, he saw seraphim, these very these kind of brilliant, fiery sorts of angels, and they're there, and they're, they're calling out one to another. They're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And so the, the world was created to be full of the glory of God. And we're, that's really where we're headed. In a certain sense, we can say the world is already full of the glory of God, but in another sense, we're not yet there, and God created the world in via, meaning en route, in route. It's going somewhere. The world was not created in a perfect uh, state of being. It's heading towards perfection, and we're not there yet. And, and human beings were not created in a state of perfection either. Adam and Eve, even before they sinned, they were given the gift of divine life in their hearts, that gift of grace that we receive through baptism. They were given it, but that wasn't, they weren't final. They weren't complete. They weren't perfect. They weren't arrived at where God wanted them to be. God was calling them to something more. He was calling them to glory. And so that's what we know. We learn as Catholics that grace, that grace that's given to us through the sacraments, particularly through baptism, grace, and this is a beautiful metaphor, grace is the seed of glory. Just so all of the world is like a plant that God planted and it's going to be growing up and flourishing. And this comes back to our Lord's parables, right? He says the kingdom of heaven is like what? A mustard seed that a man took and planted. It's the smallest of all seeds in the beginning, but it becomes a great tree. And so grace is the seed of glory and the end result of that grace is going to be glory. We will be transformed. Our bodies will be glorified, raised from the dead. And we will be likened to Jesus Christ as he was in his resurrection, as he is now in his resurrection. So Adam and Eve were headed towards that. They were not destined to die. Okay, They had the possibility of never dying. And if they were in a state of probation, if they continued to obey the you know, Lord's laws and commands, eventually through their obedience and through their growth and holiness and virtue they would eventually have been glorified and transformed. Um, and that's really the Blessed Mother. Uh, she, she is like that. You know, They say that uh, our Lord, because he was uh, 
the original sin was not transmitted to Christ, in a certain sense, he was exempt from original sin, okay, and all the consequences. So one of the consequences of original sin is death. Um, dust you are, dust shall you return, God says to Adam. That's part of the curse of original sin. The Lord was not uh, in debt to that. He didn't have a debt of original sin. So he, he was mortal in his body as Adam and Eve were, and so he could die, and of course he did die, and he, he, was, he was fated to die for us, to make atonement for, our, for us. But he, he didn't need to die. His death was not the payment of original sin, whereas our death is, in fact. All of our deaths, we are essentially paying off that debt of original sin. Now, the same goes with our blessed mo- uh, mother, who, again, was exempt from original sin, from the curse. <clears throat> she was redeemed in a anticipatory way. So like we receive grace in baptism, Mary had received grace at her conception. And she was redeemed. Uh, the power of Christ's redemption was reached her at the moment of her conception, whereas it reaches us through the sacraments. So Mary was basically an, uh, uh, another Eve. And she also was not in debt to the original curse, the original sin. She was outside of that. Just like Adam was, so Eve, just like the new Adam, so the new Eve. And uh, they say, you know, it's part of our, it's very interesting with Mary's assumption, the Mary's, her body is assumed into heaven, glorified, transformed, glorified. That's how she exists now. So there's only two human beings who, who exist in a bodily and glorified state, and that is Christ and his mother. And uh, when you see uh, Pius XII's definition of the assumption, he defined that in 1950, very recently, 1954 maybe. Uh, he's very careful because he's looking back to 2,000 years of our tradition of Mary, and he's not saying, he says very specifically, when the course of her earthly life came to an end, she was assumed into heaven. So he does not say that she died, and, she does, and he doesn't say that she didn't die. He leaves it, he doesn't speak about that. He leaves it open because... The early tradition of Mary's assumption, some people said she died, some people said she didn't die. And it's kind of an open question. I think probably most likely she did die. And the explanation behind that is not because she owed the debt of death, because she she didn't owe it, because she was not subject to original sin, but uh, out of sympathy and compassion for her son and that she loved Christ so much that it was actually like an ecstasy of love that actually caused her soul to be dislodged from her body, and she died out of an ecstasy of love for her son. Um, but in any event, I just say all that to say that, uh, just to kind of focus on how Mary and Jesus, and they had that grace just like Adam and Eve did, and how grace is the seed of glory, and uh, we're being created, the Lord created the world and human beings in a state of, we're progressing. We're progressing. We're going somewhere. So even after Adam and Eve sinned and all their descendants were born, they lost grace. They lost that seed of grace for themselves and also for their descendants. Um, they, uh, um, we, we still, we, we, we receive that grace back in the sacraments, but in a certain sense, we're kind of brought back to the level where Adam and Eve were, minus a number of other, there's a number of things that we're, we, we don't have that Adam and Eve had. Nonetheless, we're still called to go where they're, where they were called to go. So that original vocation 
of man, of man and woman to, to glory, you know, the devil couldn't, he couldn't ultimately interrupt that and, and frustrate that. God had a different plan. He was a lot smarter than the devil. And right from the beginning, there is the promise of the seed. So actually, let's read that together. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 3, why don't we have um, our first designated reader, Monica, read, uh, why don't you read 3, 7, verse 7 to... um, No, that's okay. Well, it'll be interesting. People can read, you know, hear the different translations. So, yeah, 7 to, why don't you read 7 to... um, uh, Thirteen, and then we'll go. We'll have someone else read. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed the fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. When they heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? You have eaten then from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat. The man replied, The woman whom you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and so I ate. How far? That's good, I think. Yeah, uh, very, very good. Thank you, Monica. Um, notice that Eve is called the woman. She's not yet denominated Eve with the personal name Eve. She's called the woman. And that's really important. Um, oh, I didn't even for, I forgot to finish the train. So the the woman, and all throughout Scripture, she is Israel, but then she's also the church, and then finally she appears in the in the final book of the Bible, and it's a very powerful image. In uh, the Apocalypse, chapter eleven, John the prophet says, I, "I saw the heavens, you know, opened, and there was a woman, uh, and she was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head." And this is an image of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve, 12 stars. It's the it's an image of the the people, the elect people of God, also the church, and then so it's an image of Mary as well, Mary as as the new Eve. And uh, well, so we'll get into that eventually. But it's, so it's very important to notice that the woman, and then Mary is called the woman in the fourth gospel. She's referred to in some very important passages as the woman, or as woman. Um, so I'll read a few verses, and then I'll have someone else. Then, so verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, so he begins with the serpent, then he goes to the woman, so the curse on the serpent, then the curse on the woman, then the curse on the man. Curse on the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, we can stop right there. 
So that is what is referred to traditionally as the uh, Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. Okay, so that is actually a revelation of almost all salvation history right there in that, that verse. So you have the seed, it would really take probably too much, you know, uh, what do I want, interpretive uh, effort right now for me to kind of show this, and there's literally books this thick written on this. Uh, but this is a, it's a prophecy of Christ and of Mary and of the ultimate uh, vindication of the kingdom of God over the devil and his and his will and his plans. So you have, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So if you think of, uh, we are born, and it's, this is a little bit frightening language, okay, we're born, in, in a manner of speaking, in a sort of friendship of the devil. Okay? The devil uh, has a kind of authority over the world. Alright? Because of human sin. Alright? Because of human beings' sin, the devil, uh, I can think of, um, are you guys from, you can remember the passage from the Gospels where the devil uh, meets Christ in the desert and he's tempting him. Right? And even in that temptation scene, there's all these allusions back to this because he first tempts them with eating all right, and pride and all these different things that are similar to how Adam was tempted. So the devil's trying to tempt Christ, the new Adam, like he tempted the first Adam. And uh, one of the things he says to him, he says he brings him up into this high mountain, he shows him all the glory, not of God, but the glory of the world, of the cities and the kingdoms of the world, not the, not the glory of the kingdom of God, but the glory of the kingdoms of the world. And he says... All of this glory has been given to me, and I give it to whomever I will. And if you bow down and worship me, I will give it all to you. All right? So there's just the point is, is that there is a certain authority that the devil has over the world. And uh, human beings, because we're born into original sin, in a certain sense, we are friends of the devil. If you, if you, it's a manner of speaking. We're on his side. Okay? But in contrast to everybody else, we have the woman who has enmity placed between the devil and his seed and her. There's enmity. So we're all kind of on the side of the devil, but Mary was born never. There was always perfect enmity between Mary and the devil. From the moment of her conception, she was never a friend of, of the devil. All right? Paul, how is that? How is, how is that? She was... Because she was, she received grace right from her conception. Unlike us, we receive it at baptism. Right. So original sin has got. There's a lot of things to original sin, but one of the one of the principles of original sin is it's a deprivation of grace. So you have, uh, you maybe just it's it's good to to talk about grace. This is a key thing. Grace is a very uh, mysterious reality, but grace is essentially. Uh, it's a quality that inheres in the soul, a supernatural quality that inheres in the soul, and it elevates the soul, it elevates human nature in general, but the soul in particular, uh, up to a supernatural plane of existence and activity. And that's the same plane that God exists on. God alone is supernatural. We have, uh, to be very technical language, we use the word supernatural in loose ways. Like if someone sees a ghost, we say, oh, it's a very supernatural. Well, I had a supernatural experience. I saw a ghost. 
But really, a ghost would not be considered anything supernatural in very technical theological language. Even an angel, uh, again, an angelic being is not a supernatural being in the, in the technical sense that I'm using the word supernatural. An angel is a natural being. So God created nature. All created reality is natural, is nature. Anything transcendent of that is supernatural, but the only thing transcendent of nature is God. So God alone, properly speaking, is supernatural. What grace does and why it's so incredible is that it's this uh, this supernatural quality of the soul that elevates us to the plane, to a supernatural plane of existence and activity. It's the same plane that God exists on. So it's it's the thing that it's what unifies man and God, and it enables us to make acts of faith, hope, and charity. Okay, so without grace, if you're not in a state of grace, um, you're not going to be able to make uh, an act of charity. Sometimes you can make an act of faith and hope, actually. But if you're not in a state of grace, it's impossible for you to make an act of charity, uh, love of God. You can have natural love, but not supernatural love of God. And uh, that's really what it's all about. Is we're, we're created to know and to love God. And we know through faith now... <coughs> But that seed of faith that's there supernaturally through the gift of grace, that will flower forth in a vision of God so that we will see God, not with our bodily eyes, but that we will see Him with our intellects. We will behold the blessed Trinity for eternity. And that's our destiny. That's what we're called to. Adam and Eve were called to that. We're still called to that. And it's grace that's going to bring us there. It's kind of like grace is the... Uh, um, how can it, with the metaphor that I have, the image I have in my mind is it's like we've got this huge journey we're going through and we're going to make it here. Uh, you got God and there's a cord and the cord goes to the, and that's grace, that cord of grace. And so God's bringing us, drawing us with that cord and he's, and the destination is union with him in heaven for eternity. So grace is very special. Grace is what makes us like God. It makes us his son. It makes us his daughter. And Adam and Eve were created with grace, above and beyond their natural being. And when they sinned, they lost that grace. Okay, And so they lost that amity, that friendship, that likeness of God. They lost that divine sonship and daughterhood. Okay, So Mary was full of grace from the second Exactly. That's right. No Conception. In the womb of St. Anne. In the womb of St. Anne. From the moment of her existence, she, she had grace. So Christ, what Christ did for us is he merited grace so that we could, it could be restored to us. That was lost in Adam. He merited on the cross. Uh, and they say what's wonderful is that Christ's, uh, was, because he's a divine person, um, his merit was infinite. And it was so powerful. Whatever he would do was so powerful, meritoriously powerful before God. Okay. The, Christ in his human dimension and his human nature was so powerful that if Christ just shed a single drop of blood, he would have redeemed all the world an infinite times over. But he went more than that. He, he suffered in the garden. He was beat. He was spit upon. He was the Via Dolorosa. He went the whole Via Dolorosa, the whole passion. He was nailed to the cross and was all out of love. So his redemption for us, he merited so much grace. It's more than we could ever, it's an infinite amount. And he did it all out of love for us. And so it's through Christ's merits that that grace is restored to us and given up, given back to us. But he gave it in a special way to Mary. He gives it to us through the sacraments, but to Mary, because it was his mother, <laughs> okay, uh, it's pretty it's pretty special. It, if you give birth to God, 
I, you know, that's a, that's kind of an incredible thing. So, it, because of that special relationship between Mary and Jesus, he gave her a special anticipatory uh, transmission of that grace right to the moment of her conception, so that she was never ever at any moment of her existence under original sin. Original sin, first and foremost, is a deprivation of that grace. It's a loss. That's what it is. It's a negative reality. It's, it's not grace. There's other effects that follow from original sin. So, for example, our, our whole psychology is kind of whacked out of balance. Okay, so originally you had God was in his right place. Adam's reason, okay, through, through faith and through reason, he was in alignment with God. He, he was there perfectly ordered. So you had God, Adam's reason. And then Adam's reason ruled over the, his soul and the lower powers of his soul, his passions and emotions and all those sorts of things. His concupiscence, uh, his uh, tendency um, uh, to, to, for anger, these sorts of passions of the lower parts of the soul. He was perfectly in order, so his reason was in control of all of those things. And also he was, had authority over all the physical external possessions and properties. And the animals were subject to him. He was king of the world. The animals were subject to him. Uh, and he had perfect control over the external world. He was the perfect king, human king of the world. Uh, when, he, when he lost grace, he lost that balance. That equilibrium was, was, was whacked out of place. And so now what comes about is something called concupiscence, which is a, a, a disequilibrium. Dis so the lower powers of our soul now have a tendency to override our reason. What we know to be true and good and what we should do, we have very strong tendencies to not do it because of concupiscence. And so it's a constant battle for us. And by grace, we're to wage war with this concupiscence that we're born with. Not So Mary was without all of that. Mary was, didn't have any concupiscence. She, she was, she was, um, she was. Some people uh, they stumble over the fact that Mary was born without original sin, but I, I think if you understand the, the plenitude of graces that were given to Mary, way more than than being born without original sin, she was impeccable, which is a very technical. We use it in a loose way, like oh boy, that guy's impeccable, meaning you know he's 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 really uh, an upright person. But Mary's impeccable in the, in the technical sense, meaning that. Not only did she ever, not only she, she never committed a mortal sin, she never committed a venial sin. Now, there's two kinds of venial sins. Some venial sins are fully deliberate, and then some venial sins are semi-deliberate. And it's more out of a weakness or an anger, or you get surprised and you, you, you say a curse word, or you get angry at someone, and, it's, and you, you don't mean it. And then you, after three seconds, you become where you just did it, and you, you know, that's an, that's an indeliberate venial sin, alright? Mary never committed a mortal sin, fully deliberate venial sin or a semi-deliberate venial sin. Never. Ever once. So there's no personal sin that she ever committed. And then impeccability is even beyond that that she, not only did she not, but she could not have. Okay, so she was sort of guaranteed by God's divine power never to do that so that that she would be a worthy mother of the God-man Christ Jesus. So, um, anyways, that's a little little, uh, background on original sin and Mary. Thank you. So here's uh, Adam. Do you guys want to take a break? No. Okay. If you get tired, because if you want it, your butts are a little sore or something, you can stand up maybe. Or... Okay. So we'll we'll go here. So the Garden of Eden. Let's let's sh- look at the Garden of Eden as a temple. So we're going to try to you know show how 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 Adam is a priest figure. 
Okay, so in Genesis 2.15, we went over this last week. It says God placed Adam in the garden to uh, serve and to guard. Some translations say to till it and to keep it. So Adam was a gardener from the beginning, okay? And he was going to be taking care of the garden. So that shows you someone brought this up last week. Uh, Laura Fayola, I think, Lori Fayola brought this up, is that work is not a consequence of the fall. So God ordained it that human beings would work from the beginning. And work is actually a part of human... That's, that's our vocation as human beings. Now, after the fall and after the curse of sin coming into the world... Work is onerous, and, and it's not. sometimes it's not very fulfilling, and it's a real pain. And so that's the curse. It says, by the, bre- of, uh, by the sweat of your brow, you will labor over the earth, and then it will bring forth uh, thorns and thistles for you. But in, in any event, even before the curse, work was part of God's plan for mankind. And so work is, is, is it's a good thing, um, and... We should rejoice in the work that we have done. If we're retired, rejoice in it all the more. If we're not yet retired, look forward to it, but, but be thankful for the work that you are doing right now. Uh, and of course, in a certain sense, we never retire from, from work because we're always taking care of our grandkids or someone, right? Um, so, But what's very interesting, though, is that these two words that are used to... Tra- that, that Some English translations say to till and to keep... More strictly speaking, the word serve and to guard. And the Hebrew there is avad and shamar. Avad is to serve and shamar is to keep. Okay, And it's very uncommon to find these two verbs placed together that closely as we find them in Genesis 2.15. And in fact, the only other places we find them placed close together uh, and used in that kind of a pair is in other passages of the Bible that have to do with describing what priests do in the temple. So the priests serve and they guard. That is its priestly activity. All right, so here's Adam. There's, you, there's a kind of a priestly undercurrent to what he's being called to do in the garden. Also, the temple... Um, okay, so a little timeline here. You've got Abraham around 2,000. You've got... Uh, King David around 1,000. David doesn't build a temple, but his son does. Who's who's David's son? So Solomon. King Solomon builds the first temple. Uh, Now before that, they had a tabernacle. They still had a cult, a place, a cult place, but it was movable. It was like a movable temple. But so Solomon builds the first solid, immovable, permanent temple, and. When the description of that, you can find the description of that in 1 Kings chapter 6, in verses 18, 29, 32, and 35. Very interestingly, the inside of the temple, when you enter into it, it's got palm trees, it's got cherubim, who are the angels that God placed in Eden, uh, and it has all of these different elements that, that link it to the Garden of Eden. So the temple itself has these Garden of Eden images built right into it. Um, In Genesis 3.24, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, um, God places a cherub. A cherub is a type of angel. He places a cherub, or a number of cherub, two cherub, cherubim at least, on the east side of the Garden of Eden. Okay? So if if you can imagine the Garden of Eden... This is like, say, a top view, okay, of the Garden of Eden. 
it was probably enclosed, enclosed like a sanctuary of sorts. It was on top of a mountain. We're going to talk about all the different mountain imagery. Eden was on top of the garden was on top of a mountain, and uh, the temple was on top of a mountain. Okay, and here is the eastern gate, and God placed two angels there, and then a sword. A flaming sword. I don't know how to draw that, but it's very kind of a, a really wild image. So just imagine a sword, sort of in the middle of the air, just hanging there, and it's on. It's a flaming sword. It's there, and there's these two cherubim on the left and on the right, and it's to the east. So Adam was kicked out of the garden and couldn't get back in. Now, when the tabernacle and the temple are built, they're built on the same plan. So you have the eastern gate of the te- of the tabernacle and the temple. And you can't go in there because there's a veil that hides. Just like we have the Blessed Sacrament in our tabernacle, we close it up. And what do we often have in our tabernacle? Right on the doors. Angels. Angels. Two cherubim. Okay, on our tabernacles. Because that's in the Old Testament tabernacle. They had two images of, of cherubim right, right there. Okay? And then outside here, there was an altar that was full of fire to sacrifice uh, animals. And so here's the flaming sword and the fiery altar, the two cherubim as images on the veil, and the two cherubim veiling or hiding or barring the way to the Garden of Eden. And the high priest, once a year, on the day, on Yom Kippur, okay, if we have Jewish friends, they still every day, Yom, Yom Kippur is one of the most important, high holy days for the Jewish religion. It's in the Old Testament. On Yom Kippur, the high priest, not today because the temple doesn't exist, right? The temple was, when Christ um, was crucified, the temple veil was rent in half, and then eventually the temple was destroyed by the Romans, and that was part of God's divine plan to show the Jewish nation that no longer was this going to be the means by which God would come into contact with man. And instead of the temple, it was going to be Jesus Christ, who is the new temple, and in his body. So Christ says in John chapter 2, he's disputing with the Pharisees, and he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And they say, this temple took 48 years to build, and you're going to destroy it and raise it up in three days. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? But he was referring to the temple of his body, John says. Okay. So Christ now replaces the temple, and he becomes the meeting place between man and God. But in any event, under the old covenant, the high priest would enter in through blood. Okay, He would sacrifice the blood, and that's also prophetic of Christ's sacrifice. The high priest would enter in through the altar, through the cherubim. There was another veil right here. There was showbread, which is a type of the Eucharist. There was a menorah. Okay, People can see still the Jews still have the menorah, which could be maybe similar to the Tree of Life. All right? Possibly. All right? And then you come in to the Holy of Holies. And he met God once a year, the priest on behalf of the nation of Israel. And so basically what happens is this. Adam was that high priest originally, and he got kicked out. And then the Jewish high priest replaces him and goes back in once a year on Yom Kippur. So that's the motion, in and out of that sanctuary. Yes? When the high priest offered the sacrifice on Yom Kippur and entered through blood, did he face the tabernacle? Yeah, certainly. He didn't face the people. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, uh, well, that's a good question because it's relevant to how we do Ad- whether we do Adoriantum or the priests with the people. 
Uh, I think you could probably the temple went through like three, the church did for two thousand years. The priest based oriented. Sure, yeah. Uh, the, the temple, the Old Testament temple, went through a couple different phases, three at least. Okay, so there's Solomon's temple, and then uh, because they broke the covenant, we're going to find this time and time again. So the other pattern is that God makes a covenant and it's broken. So Adam had this original unifying covenant with God, and he broke it through the original sin. Then we're going to find uh, Noah. The, the covenant's restored with Noah, but then there's another severing of that covenant, so to speak, so to speak. Another kind of original sin that takes place with Noah. And also with Abraham in a certain way too, okay? Um, and, and this time it's because Abraham listens to the voice of Sarah, just like Adam listened to the voice of Eve, okay? So ladies, watch out with talking what you say to men, all right? So, <laughs> so um I'm, where am I going here? I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> Which way to the high priest? Thank yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, so also with Moses' covenant, it was it was broken right away, and you have the you they they made the the, the golden calf, okay. And then because of that golden calf, it was like the, Moses' original sin. Although Moses didn't do it, it was Aaron, the high priest, and then the people. So there was a kind of original sin with that. Uh, and that is a foreshadow of really, unfortunately, all of the Old Testament people's relationship with God is unfidelity to the covenant. And so eventually what God does is he comes and he destroys the temple in 586 B.C. At, through the hands of the Babylonians. Okay, And then, so that Solomon's temple is destroyed. Now, Solomon's temple, how is the altar facing or how is it constructed? I'm not sure you'd have to look into that. But then there was a second temple. Okay, Now, that probably had a different arrangement of the altar. And then finally, King Herod who was the Herod uh, during whom Christ was, was born. Herod then, to get the favor of the Jews, Jewish nation, he redid the temple for, over from the ground up. So there's really a third temple that's built. And that's actually what the Pharisees are referring to in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And it says, it took us 48 years to build this thing. Or this thing's been 48 years, 40 and 8 years in building, meaning we're still doing it. We're still building this thing. It's, that's Herod's temple. And that had an arrangement too. I think sometimes the altar was was kind of like on the side here, okay. Uh, but it would be interesting to, to look into that question if there's evidence that in at least one phase or there was facing. It, it would have been facing the. It would have been facing the tavern. It would have been facing outwards. If anything, it would have been. It might have been facing north, okay, or it would have been facing west. I don't think it would have been facing outward, like, like we do. Like like we do now. Yes. So um, we have uh, another very interesting thing here is that in the Garden of Eden, you have uh, this river that flows forth out of Eden, out of the Garden, and there it divides and it becomes four streams. Okay, You've got the, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. All right? So... One of those rivers is called the Gihon. And if you look <coughs> in, oh, let's see here. It says, just as a river flowed out of Eden in Genesis 2.10, so a river flows out of the end-time temple in Ezekiel 47 in Revelation. Also, the Gihon in, in Eden in Genesis 2.13, there's also a Gihon that flows from the Temple Mount in 1 Kings 1.33. So very interesting. The Temple Mount has a river... Uh, like so, see here's the temple. Here's the temple mountain, and the Gihon flows down like this. All right, <laughs> just like the river flowed out of Eden and divided and became four heads. So here's the Gihon. Here's the Gihon. 
And then Ezekiel the prophet sees an end time temple. Okay? Now I'm going to use this word. It's kind of a fancy word. You're going to hear me use it a lot. And I remember once I was at St. Charles Borromeo in near the city of Rochester and I was, I was a priest there last summer. And, um, I, I, I this lady who is the sacristan and we talk, see St. Mary's sacristans are not Gabby. And St. Mary's people are very quiet and they pray, but at St. Charles Borromeo, it was nonstop talk. Okay. So I, I got to know this one lady really, really well, but she, you know, she read in, in one of these summaries for the gospel readings this big word, eschatology. Has anybody ever heard the word eschatology? Okay, let's see. Who, 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 let's see. Who has heard of the word eschatology? Few just have heard it. Yeah, few of them. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of an important word, but she says to me, she says, what the heck is this? Eska, baka, what? And I say, well, you know, it just means like the end time. And she says, well, why don't they just write that? Why don't they just write that? And it's kind of funny and there's some truth to it. But um, it, it's, it, it wouldn't be sufficient just to say end time. Okay? Because there's, there's more to it than just that. All right? <clears throat> you study eschatology or... There is we I'll use it in a number of phrases, and as I use it, I think you'll you'll understand you'll begin to understand what I mean by the word. Uh, the Bible has a very strong eschatological undercurrent to it. Um, the temple that I that Ezekiel says it's a temple that is supposed to be in the end of the world. It's the eschatological temple. Okay, the sacraments uh, that were instituted by Jesus Christ are eschatological fulfillments of all the different covenants and promises and prophecies that went before them in the Old Testament. So the eschaton, it comes from a Greek word here, and it means end, okay, it means end, yes, but it means more than that, it means purpose. So it's not just the end, meaning that it's all over with, the end, the world's just going to come to an end, it's all over with, but it's actually really the world is going to come to its fulfillment. So it's got a concept of purpose and direction. All right. There's another. And to use another big word here, I'm not trying to, to scare you with big words, but there's a there's a telos. Okay, you've got another word, another Greek word, telos, and telos means end. Uh, end in in both of the senses and how we use it, right? So if I say this class is the end of this class is almost here, but you can also use the word end as in what is the end of this? What's the? It's a little bit of a fancy way of using it, but what's the end of this marker? Well, it's, it's to draw with. That's the end of this marker, meaning it's purpose. All right? So that word eschaton in Greek has, has end in how we usually use the word end, but it's also got that other word end, meaning purpose, packed into it. So that's what, that's what uh, the, an eschaton is. And so when we talk about the Bible, is it's full of eschatology. There's an eschatological temple or... There's an eschatological... Jesus is the eschatological Adam. Okay? So there's all of that which went before that Adam is, li- is, is headed towards that final Adam. It's fulfilled. There's a fulfillment and a purpose that's reaching its, uh, its end point. So uh, I say that to say, I'm going to use that word a lot, guys, and, and don't, you know, hopefully it doesn't, doesn't confuse what I'm saying. But... Ezekiel the prophet, he sees this great temple, and it's the eschatological temple. It's the temple that's going to fulfill all temples. Solomon's temple, uh, the second temple that was built after the exiles came back to Israel, Herod's temple, 
he sees the eschatological temple, the temple that's going to fulfill all temples. It's actually an image of Christ. Okay, He sees literally a temple, but it's a symbol of Jesus Christ. And uh, it has... That eschatological temple has got a river flowing out of it, like this. It might be going south, it might be going uh, east, I don't know. But it gets deeper, and it gets wider as it keeps going, which is really wild to think about it. So God says to Ezekiel, or the, the angel who's leading the prophet, he says, stand in the river. And he says, I, stand, I stood in the river at the threshold of the temple, and it came up to my knee. And then he, he brings them down another certain distance down the river and he says, stand in the river. And he says, came up to my waist. And then he leads them down even further and he says, stand in the river. And he says, I couldn't stand it. It was too deep to even, I, I, I had to swim in it. Okay. And that is that, you know, as the world progresses, as history progresses, God's plan becomes deeper and deeper and richer and richer. So it's not, it doesn't become weaker like most rivers, like the rivers we're familiar with that, that kind of start strong and get weaker and weaker and break off into little rivulets and eventually disappear. But God's power and grace gets stronger and stronger. And uh, so you see this river flowing forth out of that eschatological temple. And then in the final book of the Bible, in fact, let's, why, don't we, why don't we turn there, okay? Uh, let's turn to uh, Revelation 21. It's almost the last chapter of the Bible. I think I misprinted that. I think it's actually 22. Yeah, 22, 1 through 2. So it's the final chapter of the Bible. And it says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall no more be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and the night shall be no more. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign forever. So this is the glorious eschatological eschatological destiny of the saints. They shall reign forever like kings, because Adam lost, when he sinned, he lost that identity as a king. And then they shall serve him, so they're priests as well. So it's again, it's that priestly identity, that kingly, regal identity that Adam had, it was lost, it's going to be restored to the saints. And there's tree of life, and it has fruit, Leaves are for the healing of the nations. There's this river flowing forth. It's the river of life. And it's just, it's all harkens back to Eden. All right? But it flows forth not from the temple, or, but from the throne of the Lamb. And remember how I said how Jesus is that temple now, as in John. 
He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. So Jesus is the new temple. And where he is, the river of life flows forth. Now what happened when the, again in the Gospel of John in chapter 19, when the centurion pierced his side with a spear? What what happened? Out of his side flowed blood and water, which is a symbol of the Eucharist. In the blood, it stands for the Eucharist, and the water stands for baptism. Okay, So the sacraments are that life of grace that's restored to us through the, the atoning death of Jesus Christ. We receive that grace again. That, that river of life that was there in Eden is restored to us. And Christ's sacred heart is there always it's flowing forth that grace. That river of, of grace is always coming to us and giving us that life. And... Uh, Yeah, so there we go. Kind of ties together the Garden of Eden, our eschatological destiny. Jesus Christ is the new temple. Okay, uh, let's see here. We got 802. Let's turn over here and uh, talk about Adam as prophet. So in Genesis chapter 1, you got this very interesting thing that takes place. God does all of these works of creation on these successive days. So day one, uh, he, uh, he creates light. He says, let there be light. And he saw that the light was good. And he divided the light from the darkness. And the darkness he called night, and the light he called day. So he names. God is naming the light. He's giving a name to the darkness. All right. Now, a name is a very important thing in the Hebrew Bible. In the Old Testament, a name is not just a tag that is attached to a person and has a kind of incidental relationship to the person, but a name is like a it's like a treasure chest of descriptions of of and and um, it's, it, it encompasses the person's essence. Okay, so when someone goes through a conversion. Because there's a change of heart, they get, they're given a new name. Abraham received a new name uh, when God made a covenant with him. And so a name is very important in, in, the, in biblical language. And actually, this is, again, another scary thing here. I don't want to scare people. Some people find the Bible scary, you know, because it kind of is. It's kind of intense. But in the, if you read in scriptures you, and you look at incidents of exorcism with Christ, Exercising dominion and the, the kingdom and the authority of God over uh, Satan and, and evil spirits, there's always this issue of what is your name? What is your name? So the name is if you can you get the name and you capture the person. It's not just a tag. It's, it doesn't have an incidental relationship to the person, but it's essential to the person. The name is very important. So to name something is to look and to enter into its very nature and essence. And to conceive, to, co- to comprehend, and to define, and to grasp. And so here's God. He creates these things and he names them. Um, but in Genesis, and that's how God works throughout all of, if you, if you go back to Genesis 1, but in Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam, and God holds off naming the animals, right? He names the night, and he names the day, and he names the sky, and he names the waters, but he holds off naming the animals. He leaves that for Adam. So out of Eden are created all of these animals and they're brought before Adam and Adam gives them a name and he names them. And so there's this divine 
function that Adam takes on. He's doing what God did in chapter one. Okay, and so the per- he's 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 speaking the word of God essentially is what he's doing, and that's what a prophet does. A prophet speaks on behalf of God, and a prophet speaks the word of God, and so that's what Adam's doing here. He's and that's his prophetic identity. All right. Now, what about Adam as king? All right. If we go down to the next main bullet point. In Genesis 1.26 and 1.28, God says, Let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over all that crawls upon the earth, so forth and so on. Now, that word, let them have dominion, or it says, let them rule. All right? it's uh, I believe it's radah. I believe it's the Hebrew word. And... Um, what uh, when you when you find when you look up that same word in other passages you find some very interesting connections okay so we see that same verb is associated with kingship and ruling and also with the Messiah so uh, let's turn to well I'll just tell you okay Numbers twenty four nineteen is a prophecy of the Messiah it talks about how the Messiah is going to rule okay this king that's going to come out of Jacob is going to rule that same word. Okay, let's go to Psalm, uh, more clear, clearly messianic prophecy is Psalm 72. So if you can call, turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm This is a this is a very powerful psalm. The the prophecies of the Messiah are all throughout the Bible. I mean, they're just on every page of the Old Testament. So Psalm seventy two. Okay, well, why don't we start in verse five? So how about we have Tony read from verse five to verse eleven? May they fear you with the sun and before the moon through all generations. May he be like rain coming down upon the fields, like showers watering the earth, that abundance may flourish in his day's great bounty, till the moon be no more. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes kneel down before him, his enemies lift the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring tribute the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. May all kings bow before him. All nations serve him. Ah, incredible. So look at this. This is a king figure who's going to rule until the moon be no more. Okay, this is a permanent Davidic king. This is this is the final king. Okay, this is the Messiah. And uh, in his days may righteousness flourish. And this is what Christ is for us. He is our justice. He is our righteousness. Because it's through his merits that we become just before God. And may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So it's not just dominion over Israel. It's dominion over the entire earth. So this is a messianic figure. This is the final Davidic king. This is the eschatological king who's going to come. And he's going to rule the whole world just like who else was called to rule the whole world? Adam. Okay. So here is this Adam. This is the eschatological Adam called to rule the entire world. 
All right, and then it says, "May his foes bow down before him; his enemies lick the dust." Where else do we just hear about dust? The ingesting of dust is the serpent, okay, who is cursed to lick the dust. So his enemies are going to come and bow down before him. And we read about how the seed of the woman is going to have his heel on the head of the serpent. All right, so that's the Messiah who's going to overcome the devil. And may kings fall down before him. Oh, it says, The kings of Tarshish render him tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. What does that sound like? The wise men. Magi coming. Okay. So the Magi are a sign that this Jewish Messiah is going to be the Messiah not just of Israel, but of all the nations, of all the Gentiles, because you've got Gentile kings who come and pay tribute to him. All right, we could go on and on. But the point is, is this word, uh, radah, I believe it is, or yarad, I can't remember. i got to look at the Hebrew again. Um, it is, uh, it's got this kind of kingly aspect to it. So this is where we see Adam as king, all right? Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about, because I think it will be edifying for us in our personal spiritual lives. Uh, you've got this little chart here, okay? Triple harmony, and then I've got this reference to John, uh, 1 John 2.16. And then I've got this category or this column that's headed by the title Evan Councils, and I mean Evangelical Councils, and then finally you've got the Theological Virtues. Now, remember how I described Adam? He was a king over all the earth, but also, and really more fundamentally and more importantly, he was king over himself. All right? So his reason was in control of the lower parts of his, of his soul, of his passions and his emotions. And uh, there was no disequilibrium with him like we oftentimes experience. Our goal in the spiritual life is to continue to grow in grace. And as we do that, we start to find our concupiscence begin to become more in alignment with our conscience and our reason and what we know is, is good and right. Okay, As we grow, as we grow. We're never, we're never perfect. We're always struggling with our concupiscence. But there's a certain progress that the Christian uh, is called to make in their spiritual life as they grow. Now, originally there was what, it, what the theologians and the mystical, our mystical theologians in our tradition call the triple harmony. And Adam and Eve were possessed of what's called the triple harmony. Okay? And then after sin, something came into existence called the triple concupiscence. The triple concupiscence came and replaced the triple harmony. The triple harmony was this. The first man had perfect... First of all, he was ruled over by God. So God was there in first place. The hierarchy was set. So here's God. So the first man was ruled over and in perfect obedience and submission to God. All right, He was God's vice regent. He was a representative of God. And uh, it reminds me of a passage in the Gospels, and you guys will remember this. The centurion, the Gentile centurion, comes to Jesus Christ in the Gospels, and he says, uh, or at least word gets to him, he says, Lord, could you come and heal my servant or my son? I can't remember. Could you come and heal my servant? He's ill and he's going to die. And the Jewish leaders of the town, this is in Capernaum up in the north in Galilee, uh, and they had a Roman, uh, kind of like a base for the Roman soldiers that was right next to the town. And so the, the leaders, uh, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they say, you know, this guy is really, he loves our nation. He loves the Jewish nation. And he's, he built our synagogue for us and he's done all these good things for us and there were a number of Romans who really were attracted to Judaism but they couldn't quite bring themselves to be circumcised so they they kind of stayed 
uh, a little bit distant away from it, but they were very they were patrons of the Jews and they would pray and things like that. So this this guy probably was one of those types. And uh, they say he's very worthy. He's built our synagogue, and she says, "Okay, I'll go and I'll, I'll heal him." And uh, then the word gets in the synagogue. The centurion sends a word to Jesus and says. Lord, I'm not worthy, and we say this in Mass, Lord, I'm not worthy that you would come under my roof, but, but say the word and my servant shall be, shall be healed. All right? Now, it's very interesting what he goes on to say, because he says, he says, for I also am a man under authority. And then I say to men under my authority, do this and they do it, and go there and they go. Okay, very interesting, because the centurion wasn't just, he wasn't saying this, he says, Hey, I'm a big boss and I boss people around and I recognize a boss when I see one. You're a boss and if you just command that disease, it's going to hit the road. He was kind of saying that, but it was more than that. He was first saying, I'm a man under authority and that's why my servants listen to me. That's why he can be the boss. That's why he can have authority over people because he himself is under authority and he recognized that in Christ because Christ in his human dimension was in perfect alignment with God the Father and perfect obedience to God the Father. And this man recognized that. And so, if you are in submission and in obedience, you then have authority. Because you receive it from who that which is true authority. It goes from the true authority to you, and then you can then dole it out, so to speak. All right. But if you are not under submission, not under authority, you don't have any, you don't have any authority. You're nothing. Okay? You're going to be weakling. So the, the truth, you know, the, the mystery of strength is weakness in the sense of submission to that higher authority. Uh, the, the, the secret of being obeyed is obeying. I mean, that's, that's the kind of principle that's being placed here. So first and foremost, Adam's first harmony, it was between him and God. He was not disassociated with God or disobedient to God or out of alignment with God, but he was in perfect harmony with God. So that was the first harmony. Okay? The second harmony was that he ruled over himself all right, he had his passions and control of his reason. And then the third harmony was that he had rule over all the externals. That means the animals and the world in general. Okay, And the animals were uh, uh, perfectly obedient to him. Now what's very interesting is that after the flood, Noah is like a new Adam in many, many ways. And we're going to see that. We don't have time to see it tonight. But next time we get together on Wednesday, we're going to see how, how Noah is like a new Adam. He restores... Uh, the world to almost how it was like in the beginning, all right? Or it's through him that God does that and makes that restoration. And there's a new world that begins with Noah, just like with Adam. But the one difference, the big difference, is that the animals fear Noah, and meaning that there's an enmity now between, there's, there's, there's an enmity between the animals and Noah. Uh, so that's one part of the curse that was not taken away. Because when the curse came in, uh, it it um, it basically disrupted the harmony between Adam and the and the animals. Okay, now part of our spiritual tradition is very fascinating. I have for many years been very deeply involved with early monastic spirituality, and the monks from the third, late third, early fourth century were in Egypt, and they were first and foremost they were hermits. They went out into the wilderness like John the Baptist. They copied John the Baptist in a lot of ways. And Elijah. So Elijah and John the Baptist were their two figures. So they all went out. These are Christian hermits. They went out into the wilderness and they lived out there in the desert. And um, many times miracles would happen. Uh, and one of the miracles that would repeatedly happen is that the animals would be subject to them. 
So, for example, there was this one story anecdote that gets passed down in this monastic tradition that there was this uh, young, up-and-coming hermit monk, and there was an older hermit, and uh, there was a wild asses in the desert. Now, wild asses are wild. I mean, you can't hardly tame a domesticated ass, right? But but a wild a wild donkey, a wild ass, forget about it, right? And so the the young hermit commands the command. They're going to go on a trip. And so he commands the donkeys to come over and he gets the old man and he puts them on the wild donkey and they go. All right. So the, what happens with the hermits is they, they begin to return back to that sanctuary, that Edenic sanctuary. And there's a kind of a harmony that with the external world that's being restored and renewed as they're, as they're healed, as they grow in grace and as they're healed. That authority that was, that Adam had is, begins to be restored to them. And there's, it's not fully restored, of course, but you know there's just these supernatural signs that sort of signify that spiritual process taking place, and so they have authority over the animals. Now that becomes a theme in a lot of the literature about the saints. So I'm thinking of Saint Cuthbert in England. Okay, and this is a funny story. I always get a kick out of this, and uh, so he's in England. Now what was crazy about the early Irish monks is that they were even more insane than the Egyptian monks. Because they took the Egyptian mode of of living and they brought it to like sub zero conditions. Alright? So you know they're like, okay, let's just do what these guys do, but I believe they forgot guys, you're not living in the desert. You're living in something like a tundra, okay? So these uh Irish monks in the fifth and the sixth century were even tougher than the Egyptian monks because it was so cold where they lived. And they would they would subject themselves to unbelievable, like very severe penances. Uh, but they were very holy men. And there's a lot of stories that come out of these uh, Irish monks. But there's an an English monk now. With that that Irish spirituality comes into England. And there's a famous bishop by the name of Saint Cuthbert. Well, he's out doing his ministry rounds, and he gets caught in the middle of the night. And for as tough as these guys are, he knows he's going to die because it's so cold. And he's like by the sea. And there are. Um, I want to say it's a a walrus. What I want to say walrus. What's another what's another name for those animals? It's like a walrus. Seal. 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 There's all these seals and they're on the side of the um, sea. And uh, he's going to die. It's in the middle of the night. He can't see anything. He's lost. He's he's going to die. There's no doubt about it. And so uh, either divine pro- uh, intervention takes place or he commands the seal. And so the seal comes over. One of these seals waddles over to him kind of snuggles up with them for the night and they sleep together in the night and he keeps them warm, you know? So, anyways, it's kind of funny. I get a kick out of it. He must have, he must have smelled really bad when he woke up in the morning. But the point is is that nature now, these animals were, were subdued and were now obedient and saved his life. Okay, and so you've got this theme throughout the saints of animals coming and being obedient to them. Now, who is the what the, the saint that comes to mind? Who's most famous for this? Saint Francis. Saint Francis. Okay. So, just to know that Saint Francis, the whole spirituality of Franciscan spirituality, is tied into what we're talking about. It's about uh, the external world and the animals being re uh, returning to that Adamic state where things were subject to Adam. Okay. So that's the deeper thing of, of Saint Francis and the animals. It's not just. St. Francis loves animals. We love animals. It's cute. You know, I mean, there's a very profound spiritual uh, dimension to that. So, and that ties in, speaking of St. Francis, okay, rule over the externals. Now, there's three, what's called the evangelical councils. And uh, so basically, Adam lost his triple harmony. 
and in its place came a, what's called the triple concupiscence. All right? And we find that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And John says this, My brethren, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, or the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life, these things are not of the Father, but are of the world. And uh, the world is passing away, and its, and, and its concupiscence are passing away. But he who does the will of the Father will abide forever. So that's a, a very foundational text for our spiritual theology and our tradition of spiritual theology, which is immense. And uh, the pride of life is when our that, that original harmony between God and man is severed, it's pride. Pride comes into play. Okay? And the original sin of, of the devil and the original sin of Adam, it was very much involved with pride. Pride was what severed that connection. Okay, so what we need to do is heal that pride of ours and submit in humility to God and to His will for us. Okay, so that's the first concupiscence that needs to be healed and return to that original harmony. And then secondly, rule over self while you have lust of the flesh. And those are the, these are two main vices. It's going to be sexual lust and gluttony. Okay, so you have the two, uh, kind of, um, natural inclinations that we have for human survival. We have the reproduction of the species with our libido or our sexual impulses, and then, the in, and then the survival of the individual through what we want to eat. And those uh, drives were created by God and they're good, but after original sin, they're, they're out of balance and they lead us to sin, especially the sexual lust. Okay? It leads, it leads, it's out of balance and so this is what leads us to break God's commandments. Um, so... Uh, that's what needs to be healed as well. All right. So, lust of the flesh. Then you've got lust of the eyes. Now, lust of the eyes is covetousness for external things like material goods, property, money, and so it's greed essentially or avarice. All right. And uh, basically, what that is is that's external things dominating you. Okay, you're being dominated by external things, but that's not how God created man to be. God created man to be to be ruling over the goods of the earth. And when you are willy-nilly driven to spend all of your energy focused on this car or whatever it might be because you want this thing, you see there's an imbalance. All right? And now you're actually a slave. You're a slave to the gold or you're a slave to the money or whatever it might be. You're you're no longer ruling over the natural good. So now Christ our Lord, he became incarnate to restore that original Adamic harmony. Alright? And so he was perfectly obedient to the Father. Alright? And it says in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, took the form of a man. Being found in human likeness, uh, he submitted himself to death, even the death of the cross. All right? And so therefore God exalted him and gave him the name above every other name so that the name of Jesus every knee in heaven on earth under there should bow. So and so on. See, what's happening is Christ, who Adam seized and grasped to be like God because the serpent came to him and says, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God's. And so there was a kind of a pride, a covetousness that entered into Adam's heart from the devil's suggestion and then, and he, 
he did that. He he sees for Godhead, for Godhood. Now here's Christ who actually was God. But he became man and he emptied himself and submitted as a man to God the Father and basically did what Adam should have done from the beginning. So we have a restoration of that original harmony that existed between God and man through Christ our Lord. That's So that's the, the first harmony. The second harmony is rule over self, chastity. Of course, Christ was perfectly chaste. He never... He was, he's known for being not married, and of course, and that's why we have our tradition of priests being uh, celibate, so that we can represent Jesus Christ's uh, perfect chastity to the world. Um, it's a demonstration that the perfect chastity is a demonstration of that healing and that restoration uh, that was lost in the original sin. And then finally, we have the rule over externals. Well, Christ was the model of poverty. Okay, he, if he had any property or possessions, he he used that very precisely, very justly, and um, you know, he, he was poor. All right, it says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And uh, really there was communal property. They had a common bag, him and the twelve apostles, and they had money there. And there was ladies, actually the wealthy ladies that followed him around and supported him from out of their own means. So uh, he wasn't that he wasn't that poor. But the point is is that he he uh, he himself didn't own anything and he used the resources that were given to him in a very just manner. And so Christ is the model par excellence of what we call the, the three evangelical councils. And so Christ modeled these, these uh, Christian traits and he then recommended them to his followers. So what you have is now under the evangelical councils is you have obedience, chastity, and poverty. And so uh, people, Christians, not all Christians, but, but some Christians decide to embrace those. And it's a special means of restoring that original harmony. So they take a vow of obedience to their religious superior. So they join a community, just like Christ and it, and it was, was subject and, and obedient to the Father. So the, the monk or the nun or whoever it might be is obedient to uh, the superior of their community. And that is thought to be the most important of the three evangelical councils. If you have a monk who is extremely chaste, and uh, is a very poor, doesn't even have a Bible. He's so poor, but he's disobedient. He's not a true monk. Okay, that's that's the whole idea. Is the, the obedience is the key, and it's the most difficult. Then chastity. They take a vow of chastity, and then poverty as well. They let go of those goods. So it's to no longer be enslaved by these things, and to have let that healing process take place. And then we have the three theological <laughs> virtues of faith, charity, and hope. And those theological virtues also correspond to those three things. Now, everything I just laid out to you there is really, really profound. There's a lot to it. You can just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into all those things. So we're going to move on, but just know that there's there's a lot there to unpack. Um, okay, so Adam as son. All right, Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. And then how about we have uh, someone read Genesis 5.3. We'll have Charlie read Genesis 5.3. Adam was 130 years old when he begot his son in his likeness. After his image... And he named him Seth. There, that's good. Simple as that. So Adam begot a son in his likeness, in his image, and in his likeness. All right. So the words image and likeness have to do with son, 
sonship, sonhood. Okay? And then uh, how about we have uh, Rick read chapter uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're jumping around a lot, I know. Uh, chapter 3, verse 38. 338. Yep. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So what we have here, you just Rick just read for us the end of the genealogy, Christ's genealogy. Christ's genealogy in Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Okay, it's a it's a big genealogy. And what's really remarkable is that so it begins by saying so so Jesus was the son of as it was thought Joseph who was the son of who was the son of and it goes back 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 through King David through Abraham. Okay, and then all through all the the pre-Abrahamic people, back to Noah, and then back to Adam, and it says Adam, who is the son of God. So this image and likeness has to do with sonship. So in in Genesis chapter one twenty six twenty seven twenty eight, when it says, "Let us make man in our image and in our likeness," it might as well just have said, "Let me make my son. Let me make someone who is a son." Okay, so Adam is the son of God, and Christ then is the son of God in a, in a different, in a higher sense, but there's a similarity between them. Okay, so Adam is son. Now he is also husband and uh, or bridegroom. So Adam names the animals. All right, so Adam's got a problem. He's lonely. All right, and there's no one that to, no one's going to no one corresponds to him exactly. So he makes the animals. Now, what do you think? Are the animals? Do they do they do it? Do they cut it for him? No, the animals don't quite do it for him. So, God casts a deep sleep over Adam. Was there some? Was Rick just making a joke about he wishes the dog was sufficient or something? (laughs) So, so this is a very beautiful uh, image here, and it's prophetic again of Christ. A deep sleep is cast on Adam, and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's an ecstasy. Adam goes into an ecstasy. Now, ecstasy in the Old Testament sense is like a, a prophetic vision almost. Okay, He goes into ecstasy, and then when he comes out of it, there's a woman there. Okay, And she was created from his side. She was brought off from his, from his side. All right. Now, that is the woman, but also the church. So remember, we go back to the image of Christ on the cross when the, peer, when the sword, the spear, I'm sorry, went through his side. And out came blood and water. Well, it's the baptism and the Eucharist that gives birth to the woman that is the church. Okay? So just like God brought Eve out of the side of Adam, so he brought the church out of the side of Jesus Christ at the cross through the sacraments. Alright? Um, so Jesus is the bridegroom par excellence. And again, even in the, you know, there's a, there's meaning in the priestly celibacy as well. So the idea is that the priest is married to the church. Just like Christ is married to the church, the priest is married to the church. That's the whole kind of idea behind priestly celibacy. Uh, but Adam also is the supreme sort of, uh, bridegroom. Because here he's got Eve. Eve is brought out of him. And he's very happy when he sees her. And so he breaks forth into, uh, poetry. And he says, ah, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. 
Now, actually, in English, it's very interesting. The English has the word play there in English, but in Hebrew it says, She shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. So she shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And it shows you how close man and woman are. Man and woman are two different ways of being human. Equal ways of being human. But they're very different ways of being human. <laughs> no doubt about that. So, um, he is, Adam, this is another very interesting thing. Oh, we're almost done here. I'll just say one last thing. Adam is the universal bridegroom. So he was married to all of humanity. Think about that. Because Eve was the mother of all the living. And if you're married to Eve, you're the, you're the, it's like you're married to all of humanity. Because all of humanity was this one woman right here. So, but that's also another type of Christ because Christ is the bridegroom of all of humanity. Okay, so let's end it here. Next week, let's talk about Noah. So we're going to move on to Noah and uh, we'll keep progressing through salvation history. So if you want, you can stay after and chat, uh, but you know.